What is going on in the experience of someone who is drawn into the strong emotional lure of an affair? This state of limerence is sometimes called affair fog because of its confusing nature, even though the person experiencing it is often convinced they are in love. In this podcast, Sharon and I are talking with a neuroscientist who went through an experience of limerence and then became curious about what goes on in the brain to create such a powerful experience. He goes by the name of Dr. L, and we're excited to talk to him today. To find out more about Dr. L and the resources he provides, you can visit his website at livingwithlimerence.com. You can find that link along with more information on the page for this podcast, affairhealing.com slash podcast 408. And while you're on our site at affairhealing.com, be sure to check out the services and resources that we provide, including personal video coaching, counseling, and online courses. Okay, let's get to the conversation. Welcome to The Recovery Room, a podcast presented by AffairHealing.com. Here are your hosts, Tim and Sharon Tedder. Let's just begin with a consideration of this thing called limerence. Some people are very aware of that word and what it means. Other people give a blank stare, have never heard of that phrase before. So what is this thing that we call limerence? My perspective on, on limerence is largely led by uh, Dorothy Tenoff's book. Um, so she was a psychologist working in the 70s on love and, and romantic attraction. And she coined the term limerence. And she used it to describe a kind of a particular state of mind that many people go through when they first start to fall in love um, with somebody else. But she did describe it as a, a sort of slightly separate phenomenon from, from love, what you might think of as kind of healthy attachment, you know, affectional bonded love. So she collected together a whole group of, of, of symptoms, if you like, in a, into a checklist to say, well, this is, this is something that's a common experience that many people go through. And the big things about what characterizes limerence, in my view, are intrusive thoughts. You know, that's a, a really kind of a keystone descriptor that you're infatuated with somebody to the extent that it feels like you're not in control of your own mind, that they, thoughts about them intrude to the extent that it becomes oppressive, that it becomes difficult to concentrate on anything else. And early on, that's, that's sort of happy daydreaming to an extent, but it becomes quite debilitating, I suppose, as time goes on. And it becomes disruptive to your everyday life, and it makes, the, it, makes it very difficult to concentrate on other projects and other responsibilities as well, importantly. But it, it's a general um, kind of obsessive interest in this other person. So when you're interacting with them and they're happy and they're giving you kind of positive feedback, you feel a sense of euphoria when things are not going well or when you think that they're perhaps uh, unhappy with you for some reason or other, it plunges you into a depression. So this is another feature. It's kind of extremes of emotional states. So swinging from euphoria to depression, depending on their behavior. 
So their behavior uh, affects your mood very dramatically. Another feature of it is that you've got a very, very powerful desire for reciprocation. Sort of sexual attraction to this other person is definitely a part of it, but it's much more of a kind of emotional obsession at some level that you really, really want them to feel the same way about you. And you really, really want to express your feelings to them and have your feelings validated by them back. So it becomes a kind of the most intense longing in your life is to get that kind of, of connection. And so Tenoff talked about it as a sort of ecstatic union that between two people, you know, that general intensity of experience is so strong that it leaves all other concerns in, in the background. And it does lead to that state where really that is the key focus in your life. It's the thing that you want more than anything else and you neglect other things and you neglect other responsibilities. Well, if I was watching a rom-com and saw that being played out on the screen, I would say, hey, there's someone that's falling in love. Yeah, well, this is it. Okay, so many people have that reaction. So I largely had that reaction when I first heard of limerence as a concept. And I thought, well, that's just love. You know, you don't need a special <laughs> word for that. It, you know, well done, psychologist inventing this special word. But one of the things that actually was quite powerful about the book for me was the kind of crystallizing moment for Tenoff was that she was on a, uh, a plane flight with uh, a friend of hers who she, she knew very well and she was very good friends with. And she was talking about her work and her friend was just sort of looking at her blankly and saying, well, you know, essentially, what are you talking about? Nobody really feels that strong an emotion, that sort of, you know, slightly infantile. Mm. And, and so there's this kind of idea that for people that don't go through that, romantic comedy films are somewhat like action films to the rest of us that they're kind of a huge exaggeration of a norm or normal circumstance so to them it seems like well okay yes you know some people go completely madly in love but they don't experience love in that way or i want to be clear to distinguish limerence from love but they don't have that kind of period of intense infatuation so that was the point at which dorothy tenoff sort of classified people as being non-limerent and limerent in the sense of how they experience infatuation in the early stages of romance. Some people who love never experience limerence. And some people who experience limerence, would you say that that's separate from love in the sense that maybe you experience limerence, but it never really is real love or develops into genuine love? I use the analogy of a flower, okay? So if you think about genuine love as being a fruit. A flower can be the first burst of romantic love and it may become a fruit. It may be fertilized. It may, it may uh, you know, lead to a fruitful loving union that lasts. But it might also just be a big exuberant flower that then dies off and never forms a fruit. So to an extent, I think it's the driving force for the early stage of a romantic connection that, that starts a bond but it's no guarantee that that bond will last or that it would lead to healthy love and healthy attachment. But Dr. L, it feels so certain. <laughs> it feels so real, so intense. Well, I, I was going to point out that I, I had taken some notes earlier today just going through things, and the thing that stood out to me about this, not only the love versus limerence being like, I put in my notes, love, 
happy and sad versus limerence, euphoric and devastated. There's an extreme yeah. to the feelings that is more than what you would feel with love. And this, the thing that stuck out to me too was you had said there's a sense of connection that is so profound that it feels like predestination, a quality of experience that transcends everyday life. That is what I hear a lot from people that are, you know, neck deep in affairs. They feel like they have found their soulmate, that there is some huge force in the universe that is bringing them together with this particular person. Sure. And I mean, that's where the neuroscientist in me starts thinking, yeah, that's because that's what's going on in your brain at the moment is okay. this overload of neurotransmitters and hormones that is driving you into a, a state of extreme arousal and extreme kind of pleasure and reward feedback systems that are going haywire. It's not as if that is necessarily a defect, if you like. It's not necessarily that something's going wrong. It makes perfect sense that you would have a system within your mind that drives you to try and bond with this other attractive person and that that becomes the most important thing for you to do because forming a pair bond and uh, having children is an incredibly powerful force that all of us experience. And so having those neurological systems in place that drive you to take that action and drive you to prioritize that over everything else makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. But it's also extremely inconvenient sometimes when that's happening within the context of a more complicated life where you've got responsibilities and you've made commitments that you're essentially being pushed into a state that's, that's driving you to try and seek a particular reward. And that reward is this person that for whatever reason has connected with you and meets the pattern of traits and, and the personality and appearance and everything that just activates your, if you like, limerent circuits, mm. one of a better way of putting it. To me, it does make sense. Limerence, you know, as a feature of neurophysiology makes sense. Uh, you know, but it's something that, like many other emotional drives, it has to be properly integrated into your life if you're going to, to live a sort of healthy and fulfilled life and not just chase every thrill and chase every sort of sensation that, that captures your attention. Can you explain the, what is actually going on in the brain since you're talking about that? And that is part of the fascinating thing that stood out to me is that, that feedback loop that you're talking about. Can you talk about how that works? Sure. So um, it's a little um, speculative only in the sense that people haven't done any explicit research on limerence, mm -hmm. to my knowledge, because it's not a widely studied phenomenon, that it's, it's kind of a psychological concept. But inevitably, it's going to involve very well understood pathways within the brain. And the key ones are to do with arousal, and to do with reward. It's a bit of a simplification, but largely arousal is mediated by um, neurons that produce a neurotransmitter called norepinephrine or noradrenaline, and reward is driven by neurons that produce a neurotransmitter called dopamine. In simple terms, dopamine is a feedback system, and it's a very ancient system, evolutionarily, that triggers the recognition of something being rewarded and reinforces the behavior that led to that reward. So it's used in a lot of different contexts. So if you think about something like pursuing food or, or something like that, if you, if you take it back to kind of an animal level of things, 
when you're seeking a reward, if you succeed and you get that reward, you'll get a great big positive feedback. So there's neurons within the brainstem that release dopamine into the rest of the brain. And that is a, a sort of a reward signal that spreads and it activates the brain and it reinforces those neurons, those circuits that were active at the time that you did the rewarding thing. So it's kind of a, a relatively straightforward feedback loop from that mm. perspective. Wow. But <laughs> humans are very complicated, mm. okay? And human brains in particular are very complicated. And, and where things um, perhaps get interesting from the perspective of, of limerence. So that reward feedback system, initially, it's a great way of, if you like, recognizing something that's rewarding. So if you think the sequence of events, you have the positive encounter with this person that you're attracted to and so you get the release of dopamine and you feel high you get that, that euphoria because you're thinking this is rewarding they seem to like me as well and this is great and you know possibly we could start bonding and so you get that euphoria but then as things progress if you reinforce that behavior there are plenty of feedback circuits that go from the rest of the brain back to the brain stem as well and reinforce the dopamine release so you get these kind of feedback loops and that's the situation when you start to then seek reward so oh. there's a transition from if you like detecting reward so something good happens and you enjoy it to seeking reward so you're the same circuits will release dopamine to try and motivate you to go and find the rewarding thing and that's a kind of a critical transition because at that point you're then looking for this person or something in your environment that reminds you of that person triggers the dopamine release already and that motivates you to start seeking more reward. And then <laughs> things get even more complicated but interesting. We've got a very rich internal world, you know, as human beings. And so when you start to think about this person that in itself becomes rewarding. And so memories about the person make you feel good. And that's absolutely classic for, for limerence, why we get into these traps that we have the positive experience. We think about it. We enjoy the daydreams about this person. They make us feel good. And so uh -huh. we keep doing that. And eventually you get, you get trapped in a cycle where essentially your brain has learned that thinking about this person, obsessing about this person, planning what you're going to say the next time you meet them, finding ways to seek them out, seeing things in the environment that remind you of those of, of them, all of that becomes rewarding in itself. And so you kind of get trapped in this sort of perpetual state of reinforcing uh. reward. That's why, you know, they become so important to you. They become such a center to your your internal and your external world because yeah. they are, they're there and and once your brain's learned that pattern it will then get into the sort of habitual cycle of any time you're feeling a bit low or a bit stressed your brain will remember well i know something that's rewarding and it will <laughs> stimulate a thought about this person that you're infatuated with yeah. you get trapped in this cycle that's a good description of someone who's trapped in the cycle of, of limerence. 
But I want to take it back to consider that person that hasn't stepped into limerence yet. I know that in this world, I can potentially come across number of people that could be potential mates for me. I don't believe that there's that one soulmate out there and that's the one and only person that's going to, you know, set things off. There are potential mates out there all over the place, but I don't enter into limerence every time I meet someone like that. You used the phrase before, seeking out the reward. What is that step that takes a person from a potential of experiencing limerence in an encounter to actually beginning to engage with someone in a way that starts coming into play? I would say there's three key factors. So the first is that there will be a certain number of people in the world that have a particular emotional resonance for you. And why those particular people are so attractive to you isn't clear. And and I'm sure you could speculate just as well as anybody else about what, what the cause of that might be. And, and you can think back to things like childhood experiences or archetypal figures of what a man or a woman means to you and previous experiences in terms of attachment. You know, that's a very common idea that the people that we become limerent for are linked to our attachment style. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that's a very common, a popular theory. Mm-hmm. I take a, a slightly pragmatic approach to this, which is, again, that we're all so complicated in terms of all of the influences that have happened to us over our lives that have brought us to the stage where we are now, that it may be almost impossible to try and untangle all of those influences and explain why these particular people are potential limerent objects that we could become infatuated with. So I coined this term the glimmer to try and describe the fact that there are just some people that we meet that seem to have extra potency somehow for us, that when you're in their company, something about them resonates strongly with you. It could be a wide variety of things. It could be their personality. It could be the way they laugh. It could be It could even be their scent. You know, Tenoff talks about all of these possibilities for what it is that particularly attracted people to their limerent object in the first place. And, you know, some of them are hilarious, you know, idiosyncratic things like, oh, he was just exactly the same height as me. And I really liked that. (laughs) But a big one, a big one is their eyes. So that's a very common thing. Oh, it's their eyes. That was the moment I succumbed. Mm. So I talk about that as being this glimmer that there is something about individual people that is potent for a limerent. I think the next stage then is the need for some level of reciprocation. So say you start to flirt with this person that you're attracted to, maybe they flirt back a bit. And so there's the idea that this isn't a lost cause, that actually they're responding to you as well, that there's a certain amount of, of romantic warmth coming back. And so that gives a certain amount of hope. But then the third thing that seems to really drive people into a state, into this trap of kind of reinforcing um, reward feedback is uncertainty. Again, Tenoff talked about this in detail, that if there is either a barrier or that there's some uncertainty so that this person seems to like you, but then sometimes they go cold, but then sometimes they're very friendly again. And so you kind of are are spending time guessing and trying to assess, well, how much are they into me? That, I think, leads to the kind of rumination and the obsessive thinking and the analysis of what's going on. 
that mm-hmm. starts the cycle going, that makes them central to your mind and makes them central to your internal world. And it seems to be those three combinations that they are attractive to you, you know, romantically and sexually, that you get some sense of reciprocation from them and that there's enough uncertainty that you can't just sort of freely express yourself. That third part, that uncertainty, I wonder if the very nature of the deception of infidelity, of an affair, can also contribute to that uncertainty. In other words, it may not be so much the inability to guess as to whether the other person wants you or not, but maybe that is being mutually expressed, but now you're in a state where you have to be secretive. You can't always be together, that the thing you want is prohibited because of the circumstances, that if, the, if that can be part of that third um, ingredient as well. Yeah, I think it absolutely is. I think that is extremely common. You know, talking about my own personal experience, that was certainly the case that, you know, we were both of us married. And so there was uncertainty built in. There were barriers built in. There was no way that we could express the feelings. And so that sort of forces all of that emotional turmoil within you that you suppress uh, or fail to suppress and and so that then becomes reinforcing and that becomes a, a driving factor in the uncertainty is that there are barriers, meaning that, you know, you can't express yourself. But, of course, affairs are a thing that happen and, you know, divorce is a thing that happens. And so even if those barriers are there, there is still a certain level of uncertainty because those barriers could in principle be removed. And I think that's the point where the emotional storm of limerence meets the moral character of the individual. And, and that's when we really get tested. I noticed, too, the, the third one that you mentioned is intermittent reinforcement, yes. which is the most addictive type of reinforcement. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, again, this is brilliant from a neuroscience perspective that this is how gambling get people addicted. So most of the science behind this is is done on animals rather than people, but it has been done on people and it's very similar. If you give a very predictable reward, so you do a particular task and the classic one for this is that you have a pigeon or a rat or something, if they press a lever, they get a food pellet. So if you give a nice predictable reward, it very rapidly loses its reward. The salience of it, if you like, is lost because you just get used to it. So it's like, oh, well, every time I press that lever now, I'll get my food pellet. So, so <laughs> it, it's fine. But if you make it random, so it's unpredictable when the reward will come, that is much more powerful. You never get the sort of desensitization of that feedback. You, the animal will always keep pressing the lever and pressing the lever, and it can't learn the pattern that leads to a predictable reward. And so a kind of intermittent reward feedback mm-hmm. is the most powerful for reinforcing behavior and it's also the the hardest to unlearn mm-hmm. if you've been doing this for a long time but then to sort of try to extinguish the memory it takes a lot longer to extinguish a memory of a, a reward that was intermittent and unpredictable right. and again if we link that into the actual experience of infidelity in particular you're not going to be getting the reward predictably. And, and there will be times, of course, where people will, will feel 
very conflicted and so be more positive or more negative or try to end the affair and, and walk away and then come back and they miss the person and on and on and on. So it's a real tangle of reward and punishments and you know it's the perfect cocktail for getting people addicted definitely let's zoom ahead to the other end of the limerence experience the person who's fully engaged in it we face this many times i had a client recently who said that all makes sense to me but I don't know how to stop feeling what I'm feeling. And it's so powerful that it's, I'm like swept up in this current and I don't know how to get out of it. I, I guess the, probably the most useful thing I could say about that would be to share my own experience, which is I went through this process and, and realized I was in trouble. And the tipping point for me was that I'd taken my kids out to the park and they were playing. And I was just thinking continually about this other woman. But my kids were trying to get my attention and I was distracted and irritable and so on. And it just finally, mo that was the moment when I finally realized, what am I doing? This is mad. I am wasting time with my children that I will never get back again on a crazy fantasy that I didn't even want to go anywhere, yeah. you know, really genuinely. I didn't want my marriage to end. I didn't want to have an affair. And so, you know, that was the point at which I started looking at this like, okay, this is a problem and I need to solve this problem. <laughs> <laughs> I do experiments and I try to understand what's going on uh, from a neuroscience perspective. So there were a few key things that really worked for me. The first thing, and this is very difficult and people won't want to hear this, but the most useful thing that I did was to disclose to my wife. I sat with her and I explained what was going on. And she had had an inkling, of course, because she's married to me. She's okay. known me for a long time. She knows, you know, she can recognize when my mood's changing. And so she'd had an inkling that there was something, you know, not right. Fortunately, it had gone nowhere in the sense of beyond feelings within me. So I hadn't disclosed to, to the woman that I was infatuated with. So she didn't know anything about it other than what she would have picked up from our interactions. Mm -hmm. So that was another advantage. But then I kind of went through a process of what I've called on the blog a deprogramming regime of looking at these kinds of ideas from the neuroscience perspective. Well, what's happened? I've got stuck in this reinforcement trap where I've got a mental association between my limerent object and reward, and I need to break that mental association. Just to interject at a moment here, a lot of people that come to my blog, they don't like the term limerent object. <laughs> and I can understand that because the people aren't objects, you know, <laughs> but I would defend the use of the term limerent object because we do as limerents tend to objectify these other people. We raise them up on a pedestal. They mm. can do no wrong. We idealize them. We overlook all their bad behavior and, and you know, change our own opinions to accommodate their opinions and things like that. You know, we're not engaging with these people in a sort of authentic way. We are objectifying them. I agree. I think that's spot on because it is. And, you know, you have to be able to recognize that as part of the whole limbrance phenomenon is that Absolutely. that is something that your brain is doing. It, it's not going to say... I get this amazing reward from this broken, messed up thing. <laughs> no, no, that's a, and, and I mean, the other thing about limerence, so I like the description of limerence as person addiction, mm -hmm. so that you're addicted to another person. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Now, again, as a neuroscientist, I do hesitate about that because addiction is is a fairly well-defined clinical phenomenon, and this is using it in a more colloquial way. But it has all the features. You go through a period of having that early euphoria and excitement and exhilaration, and the whole world is kind of more colorful and exciting because of this person's in it. You're so kind of hyper-stimulated by them that you feel fantastic and you feel like you're on cloud nine. But then as it goes on, that transitions into the sense of you just are constantly thinking about them and need to be around them just to feel normal. And then you start craving them. Mm -hmm. And instead of just enjoying their company, you're craving their company and you're desperate for it. And then you start getting into the other behaviors like neglecting your family, neglecting your other responsibilities, you know, falling behind at work because all you care about is thinking about this other person. So it kind of has all the features of person addiction in my book. So I think it's a useful framework. Once you've kind of recognized that that's the situation that you're in, I looked at it from this perspective of, well, I need to deprogram the program that has got stuck in my mind. And so there's a sort of a few guiding principles around that, how you would go about that. And the first thing is to recognize this is going on in my head. This is not about how amazingly wonderful they are. Right. You know, they've triggered something within me and that set me off into this cycle. But ultimately, it's an internal thing that's happening in my brain. So that's where the problem has to be dealt with. Yeah. So you don't solve the problem by trying to get your limerent object to behave in a particular way. So, you know, many people say, well, if I tell them that I'm married, then they're bound to leave me alone. (laughs) You know, and it's like, well, no, you can't actually control the behavior of somebody else. (laughs) And if you are trying to solve your problem by getting them to behave in a particular way, you're pretty much guaranteed to fail. So, So, you know, I recognize it needed to be something that's fixed within. Another principle is you cannot be friends with this person. Mm. although they're wonderful, they make you feel great, they're very good company often, and you tend to become limerent for people that you like, you know, because they're good people and they're they're enjoyable and interested people to be around. And so you kind of just have to accept, I'm going to have to sacrifice this friendship. There's no way that I can sustain a friendship with this person, even though they would be a good friend, because it's just playing kind of emotional Russian roulette. You'll just be constantly on edge with this person because they at any moment could set you off again into that cycle of reinforcement. So it's a shame. My limerent object, I like spending time with her. She's great company, but I don't. (laughs) And and I've been uh, friends with her, you know, since it happened. She's not part of my life anymore. Right. So that was another principle. And then I went through basically a cycle of trying to limit contact with them as much as I could so that I wasn't getting new rewarding feedback. I couldn't go no contact because we both worked at the same company, so I couldn't avoid her entirely. So I realized I had to kind of limit contact as far as I could. And then it was a process really of trying to break the mental connection between thinking about her and all the behaviors that made me think about her and reward. So trying to instead make it uncomfortable to daydream about her. I talk about it on the blog that I would take previous happy daydreams and catastrophize them. So <laughs> think about, you know, oh, you know, rather than Twist your fantasies. Yeah, you know, wreck them, you know, spoil them. No mercy. 
basically make that think about what would be the worst thing that could happen. You know, what would be the terrible thing that could that could be an outcome of this if it was really happening? And just try and, and sour things, if you like, so so that it isn't rewarding anymore. Because that was all in my mind. Nobody's hurt by that. She was blithely unaware of this going on about her life. Um, and, and so I was sort of keeping it internal, but just trying to break those thoughts and break those those old patterns of thinking and behavior. So it's very much about kind of understanding how how habits are formed and understanding something about the psychology of behavioral change, how you bring about behavioral change. But I've I've looked at it at that pragmatic level, you know, rather than trying to get to the root of why do I experience limerence or what perhaps has happened in my past that's made me vulnerable to limerence with these people. I think those genuinely are very interesting questions. And I think right. you know, that's a way that many people approach the problem. But I was just looking for a kind of a pragmatic fix to sort of turn the volume down on the limerence and get things back under control. And I now have the luxury of time to start mm. asking myself those questions. What was it that was perhaps missing in my life that I was looking for this sensation? You know, And I, and I came to the conclusion that it was largely about hitting middle age mm-hmm. and uh, you know kind of realizing you know I have a family and I've done that and there's a sort of last chance feeling <laughs> that comes on <laughs> you know if I'm going to have any more romantic adventures then I'm running out of time and you know reviewing the fact that you've got maybe halfway through your life who knows what fate has in store but but getting to that point and reviewing your life and thinking well am I happy with it and if I'm not happy about it what can I do to improve it. Do you feel like there are certain people that are more prone to becoming limerent just from a a neurological standpoint? So yeah, I I think that's a very deep question actually. A lot of people that get in touch with me through the blog say, is there any overlap with other things like OCD or anxiety disorders or attachment disorders? Mm -hmm. The honest answer is I don't know. uh, And I think that there isn't concrete research into that. But my intuition would be that, yes, there's bound to be some overlap in things where you have, say, mood disorders or Uh anxiety disorders or, you know, obsessive thinking. Uh There's enough overlap there that you could see that uh, it's very plausible that that certain people would be more prone. Right. And that would be important to know for someone if they're like, you know, it's almost like somebody who is prone to addiction, alcoholism, et cetera. Sure to be on more alert in their own minds to kind of warning signs that they're going down that path. So, Absolutely. Was- and and uh, definitely, as with most other addictions, the way to sort of most effectively deal with limerence is to stop it starting, you know, to yeah, never okay. take that step. If you notice somebody who gives you the glimmer, you think, right, this is somebody to be wary of, not, oh, fantastic, I'm going to make friends with them. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, if you can stop it that early on, then you obviously protect yourself. Dr. L, I appreciate you bringing personal experience uh, along with your study and your interest in science and combining that in a way that helps our listeners, helps the readers of your blog. And I appreciate your investment in this field to help us you know, gain an understanding of what it means to be engaged in a relationship in a way that's that's healthy and the things sometimes that can work against that. If people want to know more about you or to find your blog, how, how do they find you? Where do they go? The blog is at livingwithlimerence.com. 
I blog fairly regularly and we've got a good community of, of commentators as well. So there's a lot of other people sharing their experiences. And I think a lot of people get definite support and encouragement from hearing other people sharing their stories. So, so everybody is welcome to come along and comment on the blog. There's a free ebook as well to download, which lays out the pathway that I took, how to take control over limerence and take control back over your life. So that's available for anyone as well. We'll provide links to all of those things in the show notes. Thank you again for being part of this conversation. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so for much. for the invitation. It's been, it's been fun. <laughs> the Recovery Room Podcast is a resource provided by AffairHealing.com. For more information about the podcast and resources for Affair Recovery, including archives of past programs and the schedule for upcoming ones, please go to AffairHealing.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Tim Tedder. See you next time.